It has been a very long time since I've had the opportunity to uh, take and uh, teach and preach in a junior church, but I got to do that, and it was really, it was great. You know, I uh, get to be in church all day and, and do an adult Sunday school and then do the junior church. It was just a, a church that said they felt like their junior, there was about 60 kids in their junior church, and then uh, preached the evening service, but my highlight of the day actually was junior church. And um, I, I not just preach, but I love to actually, I'm not going to do it tonight, but I love to act out First Samuel 17. I love to act out the part of Goliath and the, and the part of David. And, and um, actually, I didn't do David. I had a little uh, young boy help me with that, and we had a good time in that. But we're in First Samuel 17, and obviously such a, a familiar verse, David now has come to the Valley of Elah. He has come to this place where Israel's encamped and his, uh, his brethren are there and King Saul is there and on the other side again the Philistines. And you remember, he's been keeping his father's sheep and his father says, hey, listen, get, get some cheese and get some supplies, bring them over to your brothers, find out how things are going for them, bring them to the captain, either your brother's captains and all. And he arrives and things aren't going well. They're not going as David might expect. And by the way, David's pretty young at this point, just a teenage boy. We don't know exactly how old he is, but we can probably estimate that he's probably not much more than 14 or 15 years old at the, at the very most. And, and uh, he, hears, he hears this Philistine giant, Goliath, blaspheme the name of God. And uh, he wonders why this man, this man Goliath, hasn't been taken out at this point. And uh, he, he asked, he said, who, who, what's going on here? How come we're letting this guy blaspheme God? And, um, and uh, you know, his brother kind of chides with him, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, and, and it culminates in this statement in verse number 29, as David responds to his brother who's kind of trying to belittle him and chide him and, and kind of rebuke him all at the same time. And he kind of makes small of what David does for his father as a shepherd and all of that. In verse 29, David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And it's really that last phrase I want to focus in on tonight for a little bit, but we're going to work our way to it if we can and, uh, and, and, and talk about this idea. Is there not a cause? Let's pray together and then we'll look at this text Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. I thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here tonight and uh, to be able to uh, preach your word. And I don't take that for granted and I don't take it lightly. And I pray, God, that what has been prepared tonight will be exactly what each of us needs tonight as well. And that you'll take and, and apply it to our hearts in a special way and that we'll uh, Lord, be ready to be yielded to the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, to receive the Word of God and apply it to our hearts and make decisions that you want us to make. And, and Lord, to live for a cause greater than ourselves. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, that we do the things that we do for Jesus' sake. And there can be no greater cause than to live our lives for you, for Jesus' sake, as Paul said. And uh, for the sake of the gospel. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not too long ago, I read a poll that was taken by the Barna Group. It's supposed to be a kind of a Christian polling agency. And they polled a bunch of young adults and they asked them what their top priorities were for the next decade before them. 
Here's the things that top the list. Number one, I just want to follow my dreams. Number two, I want to find out who I really am. Number three, I want to enjoy life before I have more responsibilities. These were young adults. These were not teenagers. These were young adults. I want to enjoy life before I have more responsibilities. Uh, number four, I want to become famous and influential. And number five was, I want to travel to other countries. Those were the top five results of young adults in the United States of America and kind of their top priorities for a whole decade to come. So young adults, think that through. I guess that's anywhere from about 18 to probably 22 to 23 or 4 years old, I'm guessing, that college age. That means that for the time that they're going to be anywhere from 28, <laughs> all, from, uh, you know, up till 28 to like 34, they're looking to just be like Instagram influencers, follow their dreams, figure out who they are, and travel the world. Um, okay, I guess. I, I mentioned that stuff tonight only for this reason. Everybody has some cause they want to live for. Everybody has something that they want to do, one kind of main thing. And, and I know there's these bucket list things, and oh, I'd love to do this thing, that thing, this thing, and the other thing. But most people have like one main cause that they're looking to live for. And, and, and as we come to this text, David asks us this great question, is there not a cause? And, and we know what his cause was, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But as we come to this text, the first thing I want us to notice tonight is that as David arrives on the scene in the Valley of Elah, or just over on, on the Israelized side of that valley, as they're kind of encamped up into the rocky hills and such, uh, he sees a lot of godliness, a godlessness. And so I want to notice the godlessness David saw. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but David saw a lot of godlessness on both sides of the valley, by the way. He saw godlessness in the contenders and in the challenger, Goliath and the Philistines, but he also saw godlessness in the camp of the Israelites as well. And, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to give you these thoughts and, 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 and try to move on to David's statement, but Think of what David saw, and think first of all of the contenders and their challenge. And David takes a look, and he is totally taken aback. He is very surprised, and what he is hearing come across the valley as Goliath gets out there and challenges every day and blasphemes every day. Um, you know, the first thing I think he saw was this, this colossal challenge. This colossal challenge. You think about Goliath. I'm not going to read the, the verses tonight for sake of time, but you can read through verse 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel 17. And Goliath truly was a giant amongst men. Uh, depending upon how you compute the cubit and the span, uh, Goliath was a minimum of 9 feet 9 inches tall, perhaps as tall as 11 feet 8 inches. He's somewhere in that range. Now, I did some checking and I found out that the average male, again, I don't know where they get these stats, but Google told me, so I'm believing it. Um, the average male weighs 2.87 pounds, 2.87 pounds for every inch of height. That means if you do the math, Goliath weighed somewhere between 335 and 400 pounds. 
And actually, that's probably conservative because here's what we do know. We got a guy in our day and age named Shaq O'Neal. Seven feet, one inch tall, weighs 324 pounds. And so, you know, this was a pretty big challenge. Uh, his coat of mail, mail, Goliath's armor, if you will, it weighed 125 pounds. His spear was 12 feet, 7 inches long, and it probably weighed about 33 pounds, if we can do the, the math correctly. All of this to say is, is that Goliath was a challenge that was kind of larger than life. And, and he was godless in all that he did. And, 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 you know, we face a lot of challenges in this world and in our culture with a lot of godlessness. And it can oftentimes seem larger than life. It can seem colossal. And it can seem that the challenges that we face in, in living out a Christian life and trying to get the gospel to as many people as live on planet Earth now is just super colossal, larger than life, and David yet still kind of challenges you and I. But isn't there a cause? Isn't it worth it? I think of the fact that he saw this contempt uh, from the challenger's side as well. Uh, you know, Goliath kind of taunts the Israelites as he comes out and basically, why are you coming to battle against me? Who do you think you are? Uh, why would you even dare to assemble yourselves against me? Uh, you know, as, as Goliath makes this call in, in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 17, he says this, the Bible says, And he stood and he cried unto the armies of Israel, and he said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine, and ye servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And his reference to Saul is really kind of a challenge to Saul himself. He's like, hey Saul, if you're not man enough, find somebody else to come down. And, and Goliath is kind of shouting, who do you think you are? How, how dare you come oppose me? What kind of foolishness causes you to think you can stand against me? And in all of this, for 40 days, Goliath displays this contempt for the people of God. And again, I see that in our culture. I see that in our society. I see that all around us. And, and not just in the United States of America, but in the world, there is a growing contempt for uh, uh, for God and, and the things of God and those who would live for God. And David says, but isn't there a cause? And then I see the conceit of the contender as well. The conceit of the contender in verse 9, Goliath goes on, he says, if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. This guy is so conceited he is so proud, he is so filled with, with pride and self-importance that he presumes to venture the fate of his entire nation on his ability to take on the challenger that he's going to face. If your challenger can take me, then we'll all be your slaves. That is, that is tremendous amount of pride. Uh, somebody said this, a commentator writing about Goliath said that the heart of Goliath was nothing but a lump of proud flesh. And I think that that's probably an accurate statement. And he sees himself as unconquerable. He sees himself as, as you know, I know everything. I've got it together. Uh, he's got no clue that pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And, and here's this, this man, and again, I see this in our culture, right? This, this culture that kind of belittles uh, Christianity and those who would live for God, and yet David is still chiding us and encouraging us, admonishing us, maybe a better word. Is there not a cause? 
But then look at David, and, and, and you would think, David sees that from a, a Goliath, and he sees that from the Philistines, and you would hope he could look back at his comrades and he could get a little encouragement, but he doesn't. And he sees a, 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 some, some godlessness there. And by the way, the last thing I, I wrote down about the challenge from Goliath was that it was continual. It was continual. It, I mean, it never stopped. Day after day after day after day, there was no break in it. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, you and I aren't going aren't gonna to see a break in, in what we're experiencing either. Uh, we can all read our Bibles. We understand that in the latter days, men are going to grow worse and worse, not better and better. And so there's all of this, and then he looks at the camp of his comrades, and what does he see there? Well, the first thing I wrote down was he saw cowardice. He saw a bunch of men who were afraid to go out to battle. Um, you know, okay, so, like, I don't want to fight the 11-foot guy that weighs 400 pounds alone, but you got a whole army. And if he's the only guy standing out there, go take him down. Go, go do something about this. And, and yet they're all hiding and they're, they're dismayed and they're greatly afraid, the Bible says. They're kind of gripped by their fear. Um, to their credit, verse 24 says this, And all of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were so afraid. So the idea is kind of like every morning they get up, it's like, let's get up, let's see what we can do today. They get maybe further down towards the valley as they come out of the rocks. They see Goliath and they flee and they kind of disappear again into the rocks in a, in a, gripped by their fear. And it's just such a sad condition that we see these people in and, and having no boldness and no courage. And, and I think in these days that you and I should really pray the prayer of uh, the Apostle Paul that he prayed often. Brethren, pray that I would have boldness. And boy, we're going to need some boldness in, in a culture, in a society that you and I live in, in a world that we're facing. We're going to have to have some, some boldness and, and something that says, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to do my very best to live for the Lord. But that's not what we saw. These, these men were just kind of cowering down. There's also a certain callousness about their actions as well, I think. You think about what's been going on. And Goliath is coming out, and he's not just belittling them, and that's one thing. But he's blaspheming God. That's a whole other thing. And there's this kind of callousness that they don't even have enough concern to say, hey, no, you know what, you can say what you want about me, but, but you can't talk about my God that way. You can't talk about my Savior that way. You want to talk about me, that's, that's one thing. You want to belittle the armies of the Israelites, that's one thing. You want to belittle Christianity, that's, that's one thing. But you can't talk about my Savior that way. And then I see that they were contemptuous as well. I don't know about you, but I can hear the disdain. I can hear the scorn in the voice of David's brother when we read in verse number 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, uh, heard uh, when he spake unto, him, unto the men in Eliab's. Because David says, right, he's like, hey guys, what's going on? I'm not letting this guy blaspheme this way. And Eliab hears this, and his anger is kindled against David. And he said, why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, for thou art, not come, uh, thou, art, thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. 
David arrived with provisions at the behest of his father, by the way. And uh, he comes with a greeting of peace and, and, uh, and, and he salutes them properly. He holds a, pre- a pleasant conversation with them all the way up until verse number 23. Then when Goliath shows up and he blasphemes God for the 79th time in these 40 days... David says, hey, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And with that one question, there's this anger, there's this venom, there's this hatred from his brother that kind of comes out. And and he even pretends to know David's heart. I know your heart. I've kind of learned that the person who, who claims to know the real intentions of someone else's heart is is usually filled with contempt for that person because the bible tells us very plainly the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it the fact of the matter is you and i are not even really good at knowing our own hearts but david's brother turns on him and and mark it down as a general rule that whenever you step out to fight and to stand For the Lord Jesus Christ, there's always going to be somebody who will be there to discourage. There will always be somebody there who who doesn't like it the way you're doing it or uh, wants to make little of it. Then I I see some conceit also on the side of David's comrades. I I think of Saul. When David finally gets to go see Saul and Saul goes and he says, Hey, listen, you can't go stand against this guy. You, You can't fight him. You're a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. But if you want to, go ahead and take, and, 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 the, and he, and he kind of adds this on, right? And the Lord be with thee. Almost kind of like an afterthought. And he says, you know, take my, take my armor and take my helmet and go ahead and, and see. And it's an amazing fact of human nature that even cowards can be proud too. <laughs> it's all this kind of misplaced pride, really. Uh, you think of what Saul's really doing. He doesn't believe David can win, but he's willing to let David go fight on his, on, on, on his behalf, and he does it in a way that exercises his own human wisdom. You can't do this, but you might as well take my armor if you're going to try. Not like, you know, maybe God really can use your faith. And he trusted in his own heart and leaned to his own understanding. And, and in all of this, I just see on both sides of the, of the valley... I would sum it up this way. Ultimately, what David saw on the Philistine side and on the Israelite side was simply this. Unbelief. Unbelief on Goliath's side that there really was a God that would protect the Israelites and and give them a victory. And unbelief on the Israelite side as well that their God would give them the victory. You know, they they knew the Bible. They, They had the Old Testament. They knew that God had promised them certain victories and that he would be their shield and defender. And yet, there's this unbelief on both sides. And so there's this godlessness that David sees, but then there's this godliness that David shows. And that's kind of where I wanted to get to tonight. We're going to have to go through these really quickly because I've got a bunch of things that I'm going to give them to you as bullet points and some things uh, that you can look up later that for me, David just goes through this and there's so many great examples of what David does to show us that you know what there is a cause and we're going to get there at the end of this in a a couple uh, a few more minutes but but how does he get there and how does he live for that cause 
Well, I think, number one, I wrote down this. I, I see it in the compliance with the instructions of his father. The compliance with the, the, with the instructions of his father. You know, his father said, hey, David, get up, get some cheese, get some supplies, go down and see how your brothers are doing. You know, as a, as a teenage boy, you don't want to go down and bring the supplies to your older brothers. You want to go down and be a part of the army. You want to be a part of the, the fighting crowd. And you don't want to be the errand boy. But there's no complaint. There's no like, yeah, I don't want to do that job, Dad. In fact, the Bible says that he rose up early in the morning and he just did what his dad told him to do. And uh, it was no, no wonder he, he knew how to obey God. He knew how to obey his father, his, his earthly father. I see his concern for the glory of God. In verse number 26, he hears, he hears Goliath. He hears what he has to say about Saul. He hears what he has to say about the Israelite army. But he doesn't even really, kind of, that doesn't smack him too hard. That, he's not some, he doesn't seem to be so concerned with that. But here's what he does say. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Not the armies of Saul, not the armies of the Israelites, but who is this guy to challenge the armies of the living God? And he had a, a tremendous concern for the honor and the glory of God. And then I see the constraint that he showed in not casting judgment against any of the army of Saul. Even though I pointed out all these kind of things that he saw, no doubt David saw those and maybe even passed those through his mind, but in the end, when he, when he says to his... Um, when he says to his, his, kinda, his brethren there, and he says, is there, uh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not saying, hey, how come you guys aren't doing anything? He's just like, who's this guy? And how come we're not taking him out? And in his response even to Eliab in verse 29 and 30, uh, what have I done? And is there not a cause? David says, shows me plainly, I, I don't want to argue with you. The, the, the enemy's over on that side. The enemy's not over here on the side I'm standing on. And that's really a great, I wish I had more time because, you know, we would do better if we could get along with each other better. <laughs> we really would. And, um, you know, we should not be known for infighting and division and not being able to get along. Jesus did say, they shall know you by your love, <laughs> one for another. And, and David just, I, I, I see him and he says, look, it, there's a cause. And if you don't want to live for that cause, I'm going to live for that cause. But I'm not going to belittle you in it. I see, his, I see his contentment to have been a shepherd, even though his brother belittled him for it. Even though his brother ridiculed him for it. Oh, you got those few sheep in the wilderness. But David understood something. God made me a shepherd, so I'll be a shepherd. And he was content to do what he had been made to do, at least for that time in his life. And, and even when he comes to Saul, he looks, no, hey, I'm, I'm just a shepherd boy. But I'm no ordinary shepherd boy. There, there have been some battles that I fought. And I think what David is saying is, I'm okay being a shepherd boy, but if I'm a shepherd boy, then, then I'm going to do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. I see his carefulness to give all the glory to God when he speaks about his previous battles. You remember when he's kind of giving his pedigree to, to Saul. And so Jesus, Saul, you, Saul's kind of, you can't do this. And David says, well, wait a minute, I'm a shepherd. I get that. But 
Let me tell you about the time, and he says in verse 37, the Lord delivered me out of the paw of a lion and from the paw of the bear. The Lord delivered me. Not, hey, let me tell you how I whipped up on a lion, I whipped up on a bear, but the Lord delivered me. And his carefulness to say, you know what, God did this. I don't know who the quote is attributable to. I've heard it from a number of people. I used to think I knew who coined the term, but I'm not sure I do any longer. But it's a good phrase any, anyway, no matter who first said it. There is no power limit placed on the man or the woman or the child of God as long as they don't touch the glory. And I think that's what we see in David's life. I don't want to touch the glory. And God says, okay, there's no power limit on what I'm going to let you do and what I'm going to do through you. I see his complete faith in God to bring victory. And David exhibited that faith, I think, in a number of ways. I see it in his resounding statement of faith when he goes down to face the Philistine, when he goes down to face Goliath. He, he, says, he doesn't say, hey, listen. He doesn't say to Goliath, I whipped a lion, I whipped a bear, you're nothing. You know, when I worked for the state of Connecticut, I would get threatened very, very often by guys who were... Pretty bad guys. Killers. We were locking up mass murderers. We were locking up guys doing, you know, 490 consecutive life terms. I remember locking up a guy. 490, I like in, in case he lived out the first 390, was given 490. And, and every once in a while, they would, they would, you know, they would threaten you. I, I remember that there was a actually, are we live streaming? No, we're live streaming. I'm not going to talk about that one. Um, Let's just say I would get threatened, okay? And my response a lot of times to those guys was this. I'd be like, let me tell you something. I've been hit by a car. By the way, that's true. I've been hit by a car, got up and walked away. I've been struck by lightning. By the way, that's true. I've been hit by a car, I've been struck by lightning. I've been in 19 prison riots where people died and I'm still here. What are you going to do to me? That's what I would say to those guys that would threaten me. But that wasn't a David-like response. That was a, really a prideful response. David's, David's like, hey, the Lord will deliver me out of your hand. I, I see his faith in his refusal to wear the armor of Saul and, and not to take Saul's weapons that he hadn't tried and tested to the battlefield. He said, listen... I use a sling and a stone. That's, what, that's my tools as a shepherd. That's what God's used in the past to deliver me. I'm just going to trust God to deliver me with that now too. I see his reliance upon the, upon the Lord as he brings those things down to the battlefield. And he, and he enters in not with breastplate and helmet and shield. And, and yet he goes down with the clothes of a shepherd. No sword, no bow, a sling, not a quiver. No arrows, no, no fancy weapons, five smooth stones from a brook, and just pure faith in God. And I see this kind of reckless abandon in his, in his faith as well as he charges into the valley and he, and he charges at Goliath. Can you imagine the scene? Uh, the, the Bible says in verse 40 that, that David drew near to Goliath. The phrase really has this implication that, that David charged Goliath. 
And then he doesn't retreat as the Bible says in verse 41 that Goliath draws near as well. And that phrase holds more of the idea of Goliath is, is going to now engage in battle. And, and David's like those three Hebrew boys facing Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He's not careful. In other words, he's not worrisome because he's assured of something. God's going to deliver me. And he displays that in his confident statement that victory is assured because God would bring it. That's what he says in verse 45 and verse 46. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. And by the way, that's who he was concerned about way back when he was talking to Eliab and his brothers. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the, uh, the carcasses of the host of the Philistines. David's looking past Goliath to the whole army of the Philistines. That's an amazing amount of faith. I'm going to give not only you are going to be bird food, but your whole army is going to be bird food. I'm going to give their carcasses this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And he's not even looking for a kind of prolonged and protracted engagement here. This day, it's all over. And before David ever slung a stone, he is already confident that there's going to be victory. And Goliath comes to David with earthly force, but David comes to Goliath with exceptional faith. And guess which one wins? It is David who, who said in Psalm 27 and verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And, and I see in this David's godliness in this text that, that really, if we contrast it, we just sum it up this way. If there was unbelief on the part of Goliath and the Philistines and there was unbelief in the army of the Israelites, then David's major contrast is he's a believer. And he acts like it. And that's what this world needs, is, is believers to act like it. And, and so I see the godlessness that he saw. I see the godliness that David showed. And, the, and then I see the goalie set. And we're going to wrap it up with this. Uh, that verse, the verse 29, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause worth taking on this giant for? Is there not a cause worth fighting for? Is there not a cause worth risking everything for? Is there, is there not a cause to hazard your life for? And it seems to me that when David asked that question, David already knew and had settled the answer in his own heart. And it's refreshing to see that, that for David, the cause was not corruptible earthly riches, because Saul was offering a lot of riches, right? That's what his, that's what his brethren told him. Hey, whoever kills this guy, Saul's going to make him rich. It's like it bounces off of, off of David's ears. It's like he doesn't even hear that part. Stick with me on this one. Don't get mad at me just right away, okay? But I think it's refreshing that he didn't even fight necessarily for his country or his culture. Now, now don't get mad at me because remember, my son just came back from Baghdad. I understand the idea of fighting for country. Uh, I understand that completely. And I would never belittle our brave servicemen and women. 
That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I think that, that there is certainly, and in David's life, there are times where we see that David is going to fight for country and culture, and I think he understands that. But, but first and foremost, beyond that, the most important thing I'm going to fight for is God's glory here. That's what he's fighting for. He, he doesn't say, hey, listen, he's embarrassing Israel. We've got to take care of him. He doesn't say, hey, we can't let him talk about the Israelite army this way. He can't talk about our God this way. He doesn't even fight because of his great compassion and burden for his own people, though I believe he has it. He fights for the greatest cause of all. And we see it in verse 46 and in verse 47. He says to, to Goliath, I'm going to do all this that I'm going to do to you. Why? Here's the cause. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And the goal that David set was simply this. I'm going to live my life so that people know that there's a God worth living for. All those other things are okay. It's okay to, to, to be concerned with culture and country, and it's okay to be concerned even, I think, uh, for, for you know, your own livelihood and, and for the compassion that you might have for your own people and, and all of that stuff. But David says, hey, listen, the greatest cause, the greatest cause is I'm going to live that the earth might know that there's a God. And you know, I just got our, I just got our December candidate school um, schedule just today in email. And, and so candidate school is coming up for brand new missionaries coming in. And, and uh, one of the classes I'll teach on that in that class, I'll spend a couple days teaching them about deputation ministry and such. And, and, uh, and, and just kind of teaching them about the idea of even going to the field as a missionary. And a lot of times a missionary will say this, I'm going to the field because I have a great burden for the passion for the people that are there. I tell missionaries on a regular basis, if that's the only reason you're going, you're not staying. You're not staying. Because sooner or later that great burden and passion will wear off when those people annoy you. You have to go because there's a greater cause. And the greater cause is, those people don't know that there's a God. And, and, and no Christian should surrender their heart and their life uh, to become a missionary because their heart breaks for the untold millions in the world that might draw you to a closer to surrender. But ultimately, if you don't surrender because there's a greater cause, you won't stay surrendered. I tell churches all the time, don't, don't get involved in giving to missions. And I preach a lot of missions conferences, and I'll tell them, don't, don't, don't give to missions just because you think, man, we got to get these missionaries to the field because, man, they're good families and they're sacrificing. We hear this all the time. They're sacrificing. we got to help them. we gotta get, we got to be their partners. No, because, partner with them because there's a greater cause. And the greater cause is that everything we do has to do, be reason. We've got to let people know that there's a God in heaven who saves. And David just kind of admonishes us. There is no greater cause. Paul says, listen, everything I do, go back and read 1 Corinthians sometime. He says to the Corinthians, look at everything I do, everything we do, 
We do it for Jesus' sake. And if we do it for any lesser cause than that, we should not be surprised when there's a high dropout rate. When there's a high rate. Nobody, let me just, I'll, I'll finish it this way. I don't think anybody ever drops out of the Christian race, ever stops serving God, ever stops proclaiming God for Jesus' sake. We don't do it thinking, well, there's a greater cause. Let me move on to the next one. If you haven't settled in your heart that the greatest cause is I've got to let the world know about God and that God may be known, you'll move from cause to cause to cause. But you'll never find a greater cause than all the earth may know. Father, thank you for this day, your goodness, your grace, the attentiveness of your people tonight. Lord, I pray that this was helpful and, and Lord, that we would just, in our own hearts and minds, decide that, that whether we eat or we drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. We do it for your honor. We do it for your glory so that you can be known and God, help us to settle that in our hearts, that this is the greatest cause we can live for.